Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, the podcast where we talk to the change agents and the people making Tulsa and Oklahoma a more resilient place. I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today we talk to Mike Bros, the chief empowerment officer for the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma. We dive in with Mike about the mental health aspects of COVID-19, how they've found ways to stay open for those in need, and the stigma of mental health. And we also dive into the hidden trauma of COVID-19 and the long-term impact it'll have. We also discover Mike's love for British detective shows. So enjoy! We are very excited to have Mike Bros, the Chief Empowerment Officer of the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma, on the podcast today. Hello, Mike. Hello, Jesse. It's it's Chris. It's great to be on. It's great to have you. So, first question, really, that I ask people during the weirds how how are you How are you personally doing? Well, that's a great question, Jesse, because I'm getting, of course, lots and lots of mental health type related questions as we're all trying to deal with the fallout from COVID-19 and its incredible impact on our lives and our culture in ways we never could have dreamed or imagined uh, a little over a month ago now. But the, the one thing that I'm really, really kind of communicate to myself and anybody else that'll listen to me is that first and foremost, we've got to really, really take care of ourselves. And, you know, mental health professionals, we're, we're great at sort of saying, oh, yeah, self-care, it's a big deal. Uh, let's all be sure we do that. Okay, check that box. No, this is, uh, it's for real. Uh, this is very, very important. The big emphasis is on physical health and safety related to trying to uh, not be Get allow ourselves to become infected with COVID nineteen if possible, or if we do, how do we care for ourselves inside of that, and then in the aftermath of having it, all those things. But the mental health aspect of it is absolutely just right intertwined with all that. Either as the fear of getting it or trying to prevent it, and all the things that come with that, or if we get it and we're living through it. You know, heard accounts of people talking about how unbelievably sick they get and, you know, and, you know, obviously people dying from it. And then, and then the aftermath of, you know, where does that leave you if you have it? So all those sort of things, mental health, it starts with self-care. And if I take good care of myself right now, physically and emotionally, it just so happens I'm also helping to protect my loved ones myself and the people that in my business as a social worker, the people I'm trying to serve. And Mike, it seems like that the the fear of the unknown related to this is almost worse than the fear of the known. We know some of the symptoms, we know some of the effects, but it feels like every few days we either find out about new symptoms, like the latest one being the potential connection to strokes in people in their 30s and 40s. What are your thoughts around that, the the sort of unknown, unprecedented nature of this? Yeah, I think there's kind of still a narrative out there that says uh, for guys at your age, now I'm 65, I'm I'm looking at, I'm kind of on the other end of that age spectrum. I'm looking at the numbers of the mortality rate among the age group uh, uh, 60 and up 
And then it seems like it gets lowered down like five years, about every two weeks. And now, you know, and then there was kind of this narrative, oh, well, I'm young and I don't need to really worry about that. We saw that on spring break, uh, that narrative really at, at its apex. And now uh, the novel coronavirus, as people will sometimes refer to it as, you know, now we're beginning to see is that it doesn't really matter what age to be able, if you get this virus and you get sick with it, you are at varying levels of risk, depending on kind of which way it shape and form it goes and which way it takes. And, you know, we just know so little about it. I mean, I think we're, you know, probably years away from enough real hard science to be able to really say more about it definitively. And uh, who knows, by then maybe it is morphed into like the flu, the seasonal flu does, it changes a little bit every year. I, I think there isn't an age group that, and now the, you know, this with blood clotting and that business with the blood clots, the strokes and affecting organs in ways that they're, that they're only now beginning to try to fully understand. This is something not to be fooled around with. And, and in the cultural context that now the economic pressures are to quote unquote open back up. And if you look historically at pandemics, if you look historically, read enough on uh, the Spanish flu in 1918, apparently they had a huge resurgence in the fall and winter that next year. And I think there's a real worry and concern about that. If we open up too quickly, you know, are we going to potentially have that? And then we have to shut back down. Mm -hmm. This is a very uh, complex catch-22 on so many levels. And again, I think all of that adds up to creating a lot of emotional and mental stress that's associated with this worldwide pandemic. Well, I I know, I mean, we're all becoming experts at the 1918 pandemic during this. Yeah. And I I had done a little research on it beforehand due to my prior job as a Holocaust educator. But what, what I did not know until this, this current pandemic is that, the flu we live with now is the same flu. It's the same flu. It's the same flu, meaning that if you thought like, okay, maybe this will last a year and then it'll be gone. We don't, we don't have to deal with it again. We're still dealing with the pandemic of 1918. And that's a little terrifying to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and then that's where this whole idea of herd uh, immunity comes in, of course, you know, apparently, again, we're all learning. I mean, we're, our learning curve is, uh, and you have to be, of course, careful what sources you're reading, but, but apparently there's two types of, you, you achieve herd immunity, as they call it, two different ways. One is like everybody's got to get infected in it with it, and then you develop antibodies, and then you're more resistant to it, and, or through vaccination. And of course, you know, from what everything I can read, the better way and the safer way is through vaccination. And I just saw something this afternoon that there's there's talk that a, a vaccine could potentially be ready this fall. Boy, that sounds awfully optimistic to me. But oh, I'm not a scientist. The good thing about this, if there is a good, there, you know, we. I think the other thing is we're trying, from a mental health standpoint, we're trying to communicate to everybody. There are silver linings, and we have to really, really look for them sometimes. But one of the silver linings is that. The best and the brightest scientists all over the world are working on this thing. And, you know, hopefully there'll be another Jonas Salk out there or 
another group of Jonah Salks, if you will, uh, that whether that becomes a, a one-time polio vaccine or if it's something that we have to more looks like the flu shot where we need to get a new a new vaccination every year. But that all is still to be determined as far as I can tell. I don't think they really know whether what level of immunity that will have after, after you have it. Or also about that they're working very diligently on once you contract it, what sort of treatments. I mean, it hasn't been mm-hmm. very long ago that mm-hmm. we didn't have Tamiflu, you know, and I've taken Tamiflu when I, I did get the flu. I got exposed here a few years ago, even though I'd had the flu shot, I, I contracted from one of my colleagues the flu. And I knew because he told me he had tested positive. He called me back and said, by the way, I just tested positive for type A flu. And I go, oh, okay. Well, three days later, man, I woke up and I knew the symptoms right away. Oh my God, I've got the flu. I called my doctor and he said, well, there's no need to test you. If you know you're exposed, let's prescribe you some Tamiflu. And I experienced how quickly that Tamiflu, if you caught it early enough, was able to really Mm -hmm divert that those symptoms in, into the flu so we had a long ways to go on this thing i think this isn't a i think I, don't you think a lot of people thought it was going to be like two or three weeks and of uh, staying at home and we'll be over oh no i this is gonna we're gonna have this for a, quite a while it really did show all of the multitude of cracks that exist in society and that's one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is that the mental health association of oklahoma deals with people who are already dealing with, with with issues, whether it's addiction, other mental health issues, they're already usually strained by something in, in life or in, you know, in society. And now on top of that, there is this, you know, worldwide strain that, do, that cuts off the one thing that is usually most helpful to people, which is like physical contact, being, being in a support group in a room with other people talking about their issues. And now, you have to do all those things online, which is great if you, one, have internet and two, have a computer, but also still is not as sort of personal. And so how is the Mental Health Association trying to deal with, with the fact that, that you are trying to help, but you can't, you can't physically help anymore? So for, once we – and I really caught on to this real early on, and I, I – I, told this story quite a few times, but it bears repeating for your for your podcast that I started reading stuff out of China real early on, back when it was called originally people referred to it around here in this country as the Wuhan flu or the Wuhan virus, if you will. And and I was reading the thing that caught my eye was these Chinese scientists were saying that it would appear to them that people were passing it on when they were still asymptomatic. When I read that, oh, I thought, and I went into my leadership team one Monday morning and said, hey, guys, we got to get ready. There's a very strong possibility we're going to have a worldwide pandemic and because of this. And I said, we need to buy masks and gloves because if this thing goes, we won't be able to get them very easy. And I had people that are good friends of mine who I work with every day who love me dearly laughing in my face about it and said, Mike, you're, you are going way off on the deep end on this. And I found out later a lot of people were laughing at me on, on my team behind my back. And a number of them have come back to me and said, hey, I apologize. You were right on that one. But I didn't think it was – I you know, I, I, I told them, I said, I, I wish you were still laughing at my face, actually. Hmm. I, I, I wish I, I – I, I, there's no satisfaction here on I told you so. But you could just – I was just reading enough about it. And I even called an official at the, at the city county health department 
department about it. And he said, oh, no, no, we're we're not really worried about that. We're worried about the regular flu. And I'm like, okay, well, my comfort off of that call lasted about four days. And I was still reading stuff and I was back on it and stuff. So, but I, I think though, we jumped on it really early and we pulled back. And I always say in military strategy, retreat is a legitimate uh, military tactic. And we had to retreat and retreat to our first and foremost concern was how do we keep our staff safe? And and in this case, it's not just keep the staff safe. We forget that we can infect the people we're trying to serve unknowingly. And so it works. This this thing infects in a 360 degrees around us. And we have to always keep that in mind. You know, I think one of the the more uh, brilliant things our, our, our Surgeon General said, act like you got it already. And that's how you behave. That that should guide your behavior. That's not easy to do, but it's it really is pro- a profound statement, actually. I think, and uh, how we in terms of how we should behave to keep to slow the spread. But we retreated and we pulled our homeless outreach teams back. We closed down our support groups. We we closed our drop in centers in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and we put everybody at home working virtually. Then from that standpoint, in that retreat position, we then began to really say, okay, let's challenge all of our teams to really, they're the closest to the action. They're on the front lines. Let's challenge them to come up with new, what I call new business models. And in the new business, how do we deliver, how do we make good on our deliverables, on our commitments, serving people, delivering our services, designed per different department, different departments, different programs have different types of deliverables. So how do we how do we reach our deliverables and be able to do that safely? You guys on the front lines are much more aware. I always say the best ideas always come from the bottom up, not the other way around. And here, what we're doing as as senior managers of the of the organization, we're setting forth the safety parameters. Within those parameters, how can you deliver those? How can you provide those deliverables? And they went to work, and really quickly, we went. We went. In one of the first things we did, we put our support groups, all of our support groups, up on virtual, and which was go silver silver lining. Many, many more people have been able. We've had. We're going to open up a second anxiety support group because our anxiety, our normal anxiety support group, that's virtual. There's so many people on there. We've got to open up a second one, but to sort of uh, to get it to a smaller, more manageable number of people on there. And then suddenly, we weren't bound by just people coming down to the legacy offices at six thirty in the evening for the support groups. They could be in their homes, be sa- be safe. And for some people, getting out and coming to the support group itself is just terrifying. So they don't do it. And so now they can do that. And then we opened up support groups for first responders dealing with COVID-19, people who are in essential jobs out there risking their lives every day, delivering the mail, stocking our grocery shelves, but they're in harm's way. And then we opened one up just for the general public that are worried about COVID-19. And so and then we we redeployed our we got we were able to finally get enough personal protection equipment and we were able to redeploy our homeless outreach team under those safety parameters. So we're doing homeless outreach in Oklahoma City and Tulsa. 
we're doing. We're doing just about everything we were doing before with the one exception of the drop-in centers. And we've still got those temporarily closed, but we're also working right now on how can we reopen those and do it safely and what will that mm-hmm. look like. So it's had a huge impact, but we, the whole thing about reopening, I, my, my first response to reopening is we've never closed. We are doing it differently but we've never closed. We've continued mm-hmm. to serve the people that we as tied to our mission. We've never changed that. It's really interesting to hear, you know, how you're approaching this. And, you know, especially when you talk about how your the anxiety support groups, because that seems like something that, you know, would be very prevalent in these situations. And it seems like from what I've seen is that you kind of have a large group of people that are either used to adversity especially financial, you know, maybe they got laid off, but it's not their first time. So while it's very difficult for them, and I don't mean to diminish it at all, they're a little more used to coping with it. Then you have a whole segment of the population that has never had to experience anything like this before. This is really their first first uh, case of having to experience serious financial hardship and the impact of this. And I'm, I'm curious if you've seen anything uh, like that, and if if you've seen how people are dealing with that, I mean, we for we have for many many years have always identified, and we talk about poverty. Let's just talk about poverty. Poverty is an incredible source of stress for people that leads to all other all other types of emotional, mental health, physical health issues, and can be traced back to nothing more than just poverty in its various forms and the di- different ways it manifests itself. And so in, in a part of poverty is just that fear of, well, how am I going to pay for my housing? How am I going to buy food? How am I going to meet my other financial obligations? Now I've got a car, car payment. I've got rent due or a house payment. I've, I've got insurance to pay. I've lost my job and what have you. And, you know, again, I, I, I really think the, you know, I, I have, I'm like any other good red-blooded American, I've got all kinds of complaints about the federal government, but I think they have stepped in in a way that, you know, with uh, unemployment's been made much easier, I understand. Uh, that's really important. The stimulus checks, although that sounded like a lot for a lot of people, that at least gets them by a little bit of time till they can kind of uh, stay, things can hopefully stabilize a little bit. But I think that, again, this is this COVID-19 is the great mental health equalizer because in mental health circles, we talk about all the time about, we call, I call it us and them language. People, when it comes to mental health, you know, if I break my arm and fall off a ladder cleaning out my gutters and I fall and break my arm, when I go back into work, I've got this big cast on and everybody, everybody wants to know what happened. And by noon, you've told the story 50 times and but if I have a mental health crisis and my adult son has to be hospitalized over the weekend, you know, I go in and we act like nobody wants to talk about it. We're not even going to mention it because of the stigma. This is mm-hmm. the great equalizer. We're all the same. We're all anxious. We're worried. We're depressed. We're worried if we're, we have we have huge economic worries. We don't know whether we're going to have a job we, or we've lost our job. And how do we get one back when there, when a lot of places aren't hiring? You know, how do you do that? And that has an emotional impact on all of us in some way, some way. And some of us are going to be, there are people that are going to be, they're just amazing and resilient. 
and that's just the way they are. But 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 for no, the majority of the people, we're going to be dealing with anxiety and and I I'm I'm trying. I submitted a breakout to our Zero Symposium. I don't know whether it'll be chosen or not, but but it's it's called COVID nineteen: the hidden trauma. And I think we're all being traumatized right now by this. And we know what do we know about trauma? We know that trauma has a long, long shelf life, and it will manifest itself down the road in ways that we don't even connect the dots. So I think we're going to be dealing with, I mean, we, you know, there's going to be divorces. There's going to be, we know, we, we strongly suspect that there's an increase in child abuse. We, we are very concerned about increases in domestic violence. And I think that with, I think we are being traumatized in what we know about trauma is that while a small number of people will be resilient, they'll get past it pretty easy. There'll be a lot of people have a lot of things left over from that. Well, I wonder if that could be part of why we're seeing some of the people that are sort of lashing out and protesting that in ways you could argue are maybe against their own health and self-interest. You wonder if it's if it's their fear and their the way that they're reacting to this trauma. I think that's a really insightful point. I mean, I think it has kind of the, the storefront of that behavior looks like, you know, kind of political, you know, I'm an American and I have my, I know what my constitutional rights are, that some of that business, what have you. But I think down underneath that a lot of times is insecurity, fear, uh, being felt like, you know, out of control that I don't, that things are happening and I don't have any say so over it. I feel powerless. I feel that people that I don't even know are making decisions about my life that affect me. And so I'm going to lash back and we're going to unite. Uh, hey, you feel the same I do. The internet is a way that connects us. I think those people have always been there if you read enough history, but I think the internet has, has done a service and a disservice to really connect people up of like mind. And so they're able to organize around that. You're seeing that, as you say, they're doing these things at the, at the risk of their own well-being. And I've seen and read where the leader of some of those movements, some of the church, faith communities who have said, you know, uh, it's our freedom of religion rights to continue to meet and we're going to do that. And, and, and some of those people have become infected. And, you know, in one instance, I'm aware I've read about it, the person actually died. Those are things that are really, you know, very, you know, the, we need a lot, we need better leadership. I'll, I'll stop there. I won't say more than that right now. I think uh, some of our top leadership, uh, national leadership is failing us in, in a lot of respects related to all that. I do think our mayors here in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, and this is my personal opinion, I think they're doing a fabulous job of providing leadership. I think our, our, our county government here in Tulsa County is doing a really good job of leadership. And so and then and then it's up to us as it's up to me as the head of my organization. It's up to different people as a part of their whatever organization you're attached to, or maybe it's your own family is about leadership, about what we're going to, how we're going to respond here we're, and how we're going to do this. And, you know, having a game plan, having leadership right now is just a very, very important commodity on how we, how we respond. Well, I know, as I mentioned in, in my intro of you, like you, you don't, your, your title, which, you know, is abbreviated as CEO, does not stand for what it normally stands for. Right. You know, you, you, you call yourself your chief, a chief empowerment officer. So, Talking about 
the mental health association as a as an entity and how it's working now. I know you have over like 180 employees between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. How have you found at the level you're at with you have when you have that many employees, it's impossible to know how all your employees are doing all the time, even if you were in the same building or on the same floor. Right. Now that you are physically not able to be in the same place as even some of your employees, how are you feeling about how they're doing and how, like how things are both funneling down and funneling up? Like are the people you, you, you have assigned to do tasks who then have other people who are doing tasks. Like how are they, what are you hearing about how everyone who works for you is doing? Oh, it's a great question, and it is a challenge. It's a daily challenge, and we're so we're we're layered. We're organized in, in different teams, and different teams have different roles and functions. So, so it's kind of there's, there's so there's this, what we call senior strategy team. There's five of us on that, uh, the top people in the organization, and then down below that, there's what we call strategy team. That's a little bigger group, a little wider group, and then we have leadership team. That's a pretty group. That's a group of about Oh, 25 people on leadership team, different directors, supervisors, different roles and functions. Then we have the programmatic teams. So if you've got Homeless Outreach, for example, Homeless Outreach Tulsa, that's a team. Homeless Outreach Oklahoma City, that's a team. The what we call Metropolitan Apartment Program, that's a team. So those teams, all those different teams are meeting at different times during the week. And then we have, and sometimes we have little ad hoc meetings around that crosses boundaries, I call it, crossing to different departments around, you know, we might have an issue around housing, for example. Well, we may need to bring the leasing team and the Metropolitan Apartment Program team together or mobile medical intervention team. They're all over the place because they're out, they're consulting with the homeless outreach teams, the, how, the metropolitan apartment program teams, the, the, the intensive outreach and navigation team in Oklahoma City, because we have a PA and a nurse and a case manager assigned to that mobile medical intervention team. So they're, they're all, they're, they're crossing boundaries all the time, including help staff who may be having symptoms or presenting symptoms or not sure what it is or what to do. But, but the, the other thing is one of our big event, our big meetings that we have every month on the first Friday of the month, which by the way, that's this Friday, we have what we call all staff meeting where all the staff come together and we have the two cities, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, where we have operations going on in both the, the metro areas. We have, they're on screen, we're on screen. That's how we do it every Friday first Friday of the month. Well, we've gone to two times a month now and we're doing it virtual. We didn't know how it would work, but it actually worked pretty good. We've done it now twice and then we're getting ready to do it this Friday and we'll have everybody on there and then we'll have different people scheduled to talk and to talk about what they're doing in their area. So it was a way and it's recorded. So if a staff member can't listen to it, then they can go back and listen to it later. So that gives you an idea. We're being very strategic and very, very cognizant about even though we're working virtually, people feel isolated and you've got to find ways to bring them into um, the process, not just like doing it for because we ought to do it and it's important to do it for, you know, but no, actually taking advantage of what they know and they know their job better than I do. And that's where the chief empowerment officer uh, title comes from. As you were explaining it, you know, it sort of came out that because one, you're located in two different cities and you have teams that are 
sometimes always out of the office, that you as an organization might have been better prepared for this than others who are just used to people being in offices and then having meetings. And if you had a question, you can go to someone's office and ask them. You all were prepared for the fact that maybe we're all going to be in different places. So let's let's have that ability already here. Right. Which is great. Yeah. And with that, one of the things I has always been true of my management style, no matter how small we were or I started 27 years ago, we had five employees. Now, as you said, we have about 185 and they're sc- we're scattered across the state. But I have had a longstanding uh, philosophy is that any employee in the organization has access to me. I, on that all staff meeting I talked about earlier, I, 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 re- I reminded them last both times we've done it. I'll probably do it again Friday. Here, if you need to talk, do you want to talk to me about something? Here's my cell phone number. Feel free to text or call me. And, you know, it's be some May, you know, I, I'm sure people out there listening going, oh, my gosh, you know, what are you doing? But it's interesting. It doesn't really happen that often that they do that, but they can. I mean that by saying it. I, I mean every word of it. But how little it happens. And a lot of times if they do contact me about something, one of the first things I'll ask them, have you talked to your if they have a if they have something that they they have a, a problem they're dealing with that's work or workforce related, I'll ask them, have you talked to your super, immediate supervisor about this? And if they say no, I say, well, why don't you start there, and then if you can't get it resolved, call me back. But usually they they know how I work, and so I don't get too many of those calls. But they can, and occasionally they do, and I like to hear from them. Sometimes I call them. Uh, I look for opportunities <laughs> to have to talk to my, and I like it that my managers all know that. That is built into our culture. That is baked in. And I think that most organizations, there's layers, and you can't you can't just call up the CEO. As long as I'm here, that's the way it will always be. And it keeps everybody on their toes. And there's, a, there's a method to the madness. And I'm also, treat, I have to always treat it with great respect. And, and really carefully on how I treat that. But I like it. I, that's how I've always managed. And I have not had one experience that would suggest that maybe I ought to change that. And uh, everybody's got access to, to Mike Bros. Hmm. Well, no, I, I mean, I think that's great because if, if your managers know that any employee under them can reach you directly, that it, it's one of those things where if everyone feels watched, they all behave better. So, uh, 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 that's true. That's, uh, it's called it's called yeah. it's called virtual transparency. You know, you know, it's interesting. That's absolutely right. If if we're transparency is the coin of the realm in my in my in my opinion, and the more transparency we have, the more we're all we're all, including me, we're all held accountable, and that makes us all better when we're held accountable. We're transparent. We're gonna we're gonna more likely to deal with things on the up and up. We're not gonna keep secrets. So I agree with that one hundred percent. Well, and you know, a lot of because states are starting to you know do their phased opening back up approach, including Oklahoma. A lot of organizations are starting to look at you know, what that means for them. You know, a lot of corporations that maybe have had their people like you working from home or using safety measures and stuff like that and and what that looks like coming back. And uh, I'm curious what, what your approach has been so far as far as how to, how to assess the who and the when as far as coming back to the office. And also, how do how do you stay, as a leader, how do you stay sensitive to people who even if there's an opportunity to come back to the office, maybe aren't ready, whether it's anxiety or, or whatever. 
uh, reason maybe they don't feel ready? Great question. So here's how we're doing that. So, you know, I always say it's not that hard to walk and chew gum at the same time. And so we are planning for a staged, phased in, gradual phase in return to or as close return to normal operations or as close to normal operations as we possibly can. As we're doing that and laying those plans, and as those plans are complex, they're like I say, they're 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 tied to every department, every team is being challenged right now to plan for what does it look like for you and your area? You're, you know, you know your job better than I do. You tell us, you propose to us, here's how we would see a, a safe phased quote unquote return more to close as close to possible of normal operations pre pre COVID-19 operations, I think is a better way to put it. And, and as we do that, we're not, we have we have carefully as a senior management team we have carefully analyzed our current work performance and we actually think using zoom hangouts other platforms including the ones pre covid-19 phone calls a novel idea texting okay but but zoom what have you we are at near or full capacity is that the way we want to work isolated like this from each other no but we feel like we're our decision and then what we're doing we're watching very carefully what are the what's the public public health information and what i don't want to be and we don't want to be is politically pressured into something that we don't think is safe, not, you know, ignoring the data. We're trying to watch the data. People love to talk about data-informed decisions. And what I find a lot of times is those data-informed decisions are used only when it's politically expedient to do so. But if it's not, forget it. Let's just do what we think is most politically expedient. We're not doing that. We're looking at the numbers while we plan for when we're ready to do that. But right now, we're probably in the minority. Right now, we've done a thorough analysis. Now, again, we've got people in, I call it in harm's way. We've got our 24-7 properties. We've got people out. we got staff that are on the front lines interacting with people every day. Our homeless outreach teams are out there doing that or all over the place. In our our, our, our uh, property maintenance in our apartments are out there every day interfacing with people in harm's way every day. We're taking all the safety measures we can. But for a lot of us, we found that we can work at home safely. And so we right now, we, we've made a decision. We look for no change in our current operational status before May 30th. And then leading up to May 30th, we'll, we'll reevaluate that. So we're probably in the minority on that because I think most people are are looking to start moving back in pretty quickly after May 1. And we just don't think that that's in our interest to do that because we'd like to see what happens first. And we've been able, because of the way we're working, we are right at, we feel like, full efficiency, full capacity, full productivity levels in this, what have you. So we can do both. You can plan and be safe at the same time. I want to thank you for, you know, taking the time out of your very busy schedule, you know, helping people with actual problems to come talk to us. The the last thing we normally do on this podcast, if we were recording, say, together in my studio, hopefully one day we can do that again. We, my my office and in, in my home is a virtual nerd cave. I have many, many items I've collected over the years. 
of my life being a nerd. And what we usually have the guests do is pick something out that either calls to them or they're very curious about and we will explain it to them. But what we've been doing virtually is just asking our guests, like, what is what is the thing you nerd out about? What is your sort of pop culture comfort food? What is your pop culture comfort food that you <laughs> I like that that you go to? Yes. And and then we see whether I have something from that thing. Okay. Well, I don't know if this fits with what you're thinking, but I I need some escape that's reasonably healthy for me every day. And my wife and I, we like to nerd out on English detective mysteries. Oh, uh, oh. we you know we have that thing called Roku, and we get on Amazon and Netflix, and we've got all these different English. Uh, murder mysteries, uh, detective uh, shows. And, you know, we've discovered, man, the acting and the storytelling and also how the actors all look like regular people and not fashion models, you know. It makes them so real. And the dialogue, of course, we have to have, uh, you know, we have to have on the uh, closed captioning. And sometimes oh, yeah, we, have to, of course. we have to stop it and go, what does that word mean? Look that up. Let's look that <laughs> up, you know. And we, I, I can honestly say I've expanded my vocabulary. I, my big word this week I told my wife was gaffer. You have, are you guys familiar with that? You know, gaffer, like in, in Hollywood, that's a, you know, that, that's a role. You always see that on the credits, a gaffer. Do you know what a gaffer is in Britain when they use that term? Have you, are you guys familiar with that? I mean, the only reason I'd be familiar with it is how it's used in Lord of the Rings. Okay. Samwise Gamgee's father is a gaffer, so I assume it has something to do with plants and such. <laughs> oh, no, it has to be about you're the boss. Yeah, ah. yeah you're the gaffer. Yeah, and they'll ah. say, uh, I need to talk to my gaffer about that, you know. <laughs> so it's really interesting. I mean, you would pick up these words. So that's been my word of the week is a uh, you know, gaffer. What's funny is like in my nerd cave, I don't think I have anything specifically uh, British <laughs> mystery, but I do have a – a multitude of bookshelves just full of British mysteries. Mm-hmm. I also have a. Oh, there you go. I also have a data from uh, Star Trek: Next Generation dressed up as Sherlock Holmes. Ah, uh, doll. very good. So I, th- I feel like we've got this covered. So, well, I think they. I, I speculate. I don't know this. I speculate that all this interest in English, all these different. I, I keep telling my wife, "Well, how many, how many murder mysteries do they have <laughs> going on there? So many. I know, and I think it. Tra- it, it, it must be a legacy of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you know that that somehow that that's something that is in their culture and. Oh my gosh, and the acting, the characters, and the stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's what I've been nerding out on. Yeah. And it really helps me get away from COVID-19. Well, I I imagine like it would take an entire lifetime to watch all of the British mysteries that are mm-hmm. on Netflix and uh, and Hulu and Acorn TV and BBC <laughs> and all the places right. where they are. So, well, I'm, and I'm trying. I I definitely get that too because I find if I'm really stressed out, especially about stuff outside of my control, if I can small solve a small problem or a small mystery, for whatever reason, it just makes me feel a little bit better. That's good. That's really good. I love it. We'll on certain ones we'll say, okay, who did it? And man, they're good at disguising it, man. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're like you miss it, like, oh, I thought it was him. That's not gonna be him. I think it's her now. You know, and <laughs> it's just fascinating. Mm. And uh, I got one for you. Okay, I'm going to give you actually All give right. you a specific one to watch. It was three seasons only, and in the writing in the story was so good that what I've read about it is that all a lot of the top British acting talent was out there auditioning, trying to get roles and parts on it. But it's called Broadchurch. 
Oh, yeah. I've heard Broadchurch. Oh, yeah. Broadchurch, man. That was one. Now, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of good ones out there, but one of the very, very best mm. that, that'll just keep you on the edge of your seat for three seasons is Broadchurch. The, the problem with watching anything now is I'm like, those people are staying too close to, too close to each other. Oh, we do that too. We're like, get, yeah. you're in a crowd. Don't shake, yeah, get, get don't, don't shake hands. Spread out. Yeah, get out of there. Yeah, yeah. Boy, oh, does, yeah. that tell, does that tell you how we're being affected? Uh, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, yeah. uh we're having the same thing. Like, no, 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 no. You're all too close mm. there. Don't quit hugging. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. This is great. I, I ho- hope, hope we all stay both healthy and sane during this incredibly strange time. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Chris. It's a real yeah. honor to be thank on. You. Thanks for asking me to be on. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed the episode of Pod for Good. Mike is a wonderful, delightful person. And if you need any more information about the Mental Health Association and their COVID-19 resources or anything about them, you can check out our show notes. We have plenty of information there. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. Literally everywhere podcasts can be found. So stay safe out there, wash your hands, and get it done, Tulsa. Tulsa.